contemplate the workings of the inner being. Your eyes are wide open, but are you really seeing? Fantastic. We are live. Yes, we are. <laughs> hey, y'all. What Thank up? Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Ta. My name is Cole. We are Ta, Ta Cole, Cole. And this is Mentor, the Mentor in, in the, the Mirror, Mirror podcast. podcast. And we are streaming it these last week and for another week at least every day to bring you other perspectives into your mind space to consider because there is so much being pumped and fueled into your conscious and subconscious, and it's a powerful time to bring presence. So we are excited to bring someone that we just got to experience um, and learn his perspective three weeks ago. When was Appear on? Yeah, about, yeah, At the Appear on Zoe <clears throat> Conference for Human Optimization and Performance, and we're excited to share him with you. This is Dr. Mario Martinez, and we're going to go we're just going to go. We're going to dive into it. Yes. So welcome aboard, brother. And thank you so much for all of the profound work that you've done uh, in, in the world, the books that you've written, The Mind, Body, Self, uh, The Mind, Body, Code, The Man from Autumn, all of these wonderful uh, books, this literature that you've brought through your life experiences and all of the studying that you've done and the research that you've done on people. And we'd really like to share your wisdom with our audience and, uh, and, and, and hopefully bring some light to what people can do in, in this, uh, this very uh, interesting time in our world. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. So let's, let's, let's dive in and uh, let's talk about uh, what your vantage point is on how people are, are managing themselves and dealing with themselves right now and what they can do to actually uh, move through this whole situation in the best way possible. Um, well, um, as you know, what the, my contribution is really bringing culture to mind and body communication and, and culture is really what the, uh, it's a collective belief about very important things in life, like aesthetics, ethics, everything that, that matters. The collective belief makes a culture. Uh, so a culture teaches you everything. And, and the people that, that are given power in the culture, what, what I call the culture editors, they basically tell you who you are, how you should act. And later you begin to shed that because you go into that individuation. But what happens is that they teach you how to deal with adversity. Uh, either by over-responding, under-responding. Each country has a way of dealing with things. So, uh, for example, what's happening now is that uh, the culture editors, the, the, the doctors, who people that are, that are power within the, uh, the healthcare, are telling you uh, all these things that, that, that you should listen to, that you, that you have to be careful and that you have to uh, um, take precautions. But what's happening is that that and the media, the way that it's being presented, creates panic. And panic is the worst thing you can do because that suppresses immune function. And if you have the virus, it makes it worse. And if you don't, it makes you more susceptible. So panic has no place here. But our cultures teach us sometimes that we have to be on alarm. And, and you know, the new cells, when they, when they get dramatic and, and they get uh, uh, bizarre sometimes, because that's how they sell. So one of the, uh, getting back to what we can do is that we can actually begin to look at what can you do when you're changing your environments. For example, you have an environment where you go to work, uh, you, um, the people that go out and work uh, outside, you have uh, rituals that you created. And those rituals have a sort of uh, expectations, what you're gonna do in the morning and all that. All of a sudden, you're, you're into the cave, you're put into a cave. 
you go back home and you're quarantined. And then what happens is in, in, in general, people try to function the same way as if they were outside. So they get bored and they go to the news and they do things external, mm -hmm. external, external. And what the news does is it makes it worse for you. So one of the things that we can do is that we, as homo sapiens, we've been around for almost 200,000 years. And we come from caves and we come from, from forests. So in our DNA, we have a lot of information on how to be creative in small places, family and, and things that, um, that, that are important. And those things are what actually enhance the immune function. Because remember, we, in the period that we've been around, the immune system has done trial and error to see what works and see what doesn't work. And that's what I call the causes of health. And I learned that from centenarians, people who are over 100 who are healthy all over the world. And it's not genetics. It's genetics only 20%. So the idea is to learn how to function like they do and to begin to then make new rituals. So, for example, you, they, people used to eat uh, uh, around the fire. Well, you can't have a fire in the middle. of You can have a fireplace, but you can certainly have candles when you eat. And candles and fire in our DNA have a, a calming effect because of hundreds of thousands of years of epigenetic transfer that fire is good, it protects. That's one thing we can do. And those things are immune enhancers. Uh, eating with family, mm. uh, with candles in a relaxed way, that's what we were made to be. Not only do you have a good digestion, but you have a good immunity by doing that. So that's just one of the, uh, the beginning of the many things you can do. So in our experience with people that we've worked with, um, I feel like on a more common knowledge at this current time anyway, people are starting to talk about being trauma-informed and how trauma impacts how someone performs in the world, right? What few are doing is what you go into a lot of detail about is how it's not just what happened to you or what didn't happen to you. It's the culture you come from, the family dynamics you come from, the belief structures that includes sport fandom that includes you know what is appropriate or inappropriate according to behaviors how you walk how you talk i mean there's so many levels that how we're reacting comes from movies it comes from like very little of what we are perceiving is of our own determination until we become consciously aware would you be able to i guess break down for people what you see and some of the studies you've worked on and some of the work that you've done, if you were to break down how people's perceptions are created. Uh, yes. Um, for example, we, uh, we learn, as I mentioned from, from our cultural editors, and I've done a lot of work with companies, uh, a Fortune 100 companies, and to look at the culture that they create. And they talk about mission statement and vision statement. That means nothing. What matters is the culture that you create. And in some cultures, you create um, management by, um, by, by alarm, and you have uh, crisis management. And there's some studies that have looked at people, they put a crisis management in the department, and within two weeks, they have a crisis every day because they have a selective perception of how the world should be, that if you don't have a crisis, then you don't have existence, you don't have identity. So you create that, and they live that way. Other people come in, you bring another manager who's the manager who actually handles things cogently and, and, and has a way of, of dealing with things like Churchill, for example, in the middle of the, of the uh, uh, Germans bombing Churchill, he would uh, go and give a speech and he would give the, uh, the, the victory uh, sign. Those are the real leaders, people that inspire, not people that, that make you afraid. So the, what I would suggest is to begin to look at, okay, where do you come from? 
what cultures uh, do you come from and what did they teach you? Who, your father, your mother, what did they teach you about adversity? How did you see adversity? So for example, let's say you come from a, from a culture and from a family where no matter what your dad did, he just never made it. He mm. tried hard and he worked hard and it just didn't go anywhere. So, and he would say, don't be like me, all the things that he's saying, but we're visual and or uh, we, we're observational. So what we learn from our father is that no matter what you do, you're not gonna succeed. And in fact, if you succeed, you're gonna be in a place that's so uncomfortable that you'll sabotage yourself back into misery. So those are examples mm -hmm. of how we learn. So the first thing to do is just, where do I come from and how was I taught to deal with adversity? That's the first thing. And once you do that, then you begin to see, okay, now I don't wanna throw this in here because if I do, then I'm gonna be playing out a script rather than who I am. The other thing about it is what I call the I-self, and I have a whole chapter on one of the books about that. The I-self is what the media creates, what the internet creates, uh, what the texting creates, and they create an, an, a self that is a self very, very external. Um, you see kids, for example, one next to each other and they're texting each other. Uh, it's what, what I call the, uh, uh, the, the digital telegraph. Instead of saying, hey, how's it going, or talking, using the phone. So we created that, and then by creating that, we create an externality. Everything has to come from the outside. If you're not on Facebook constantly, then you, you're missing something. Uh, like the, what they call the, the mobile phobia, now fear of being away from your phone, missing out on information. So it's an overload of information to keep you going so that they can sell. It, it's all about selling, Facebook selling, it's all about selling. But then you become a, a puppet of that and the I self then comes home and, and one of the costs of health is eating well with the family and so forth. And you're on the phone and while you're eating. And that's one of the ways to learn gastritis. You want to teach yourself gastritis? Eat with your phone and, and have dinner with your um, laptop. And you're going you're gonna to develop problems because the nervous system is not made that way. It's made to relax when you're eating and to be active when you're, when you're not eating. So those are examples. And there are many, many more that we can go over. But just to give you an idea of how we need to look at we're in a fishbowl. And if we don't look that we're in a fishbowl, we don't think there's anything beyond that, like fish, for example. Right. Fishbowl, they, they don't see any other world, but that's it. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a very similar space to where we work. We work from a place of uh, really showing people that there are multiple forms of identity and that we, we use that as the foundational societal construct before there's any kind of family or interpersonal relationship. There's the identity. And that's, I believe I am who I am. I believe you believe I am who I am. I believe they believe I am who I am. And I believe we believe I am who I am. And those are four different parts of one identity. And that doesn't even get into collective identity. That's a singular identity. And when we're putting out all of these different identities, the body has to express those identities physically. And it takes away from the energy uh, of, of healing or whatever else the body needs to do because it's focusing on so many different things. And the amount of brain energy and brain power it takes and the amount of expression for the whole body to present doesn't allow the body to rest. And this is what we've been working on, getting people to actually unplug themselves from all these constructs of, of identity that are not designed by, from a place of awareness of the self. They are designed from the outside. The outside is controlling all aspects of the self. And when people, we found that when people are letting go of that, 
and starting to craft their lives from ease and being with people that they really choose to be with or be or want to be around, being around that family situation, eating just like you said, eating together, being together and, and being in tight quarters with people, their nervous systems calm down because the safety isn't present. And it's it's been miraculous uh, to, to, to watch that identity uh, that has been crafted for people melt away and then move into a space where their bodies are, are, are really... Um, foundationally strong to be able to manage anything that comes to them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, man. I mean, you know, so we, you know, when we saw you at a Peron, it was, it was so awesome to, to sit and watch you speak about, uh, you know, all of the things that you spoke on and it just resonated and, 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 and sat so well with us, man. And the, the, tell us about the, um, the panic is the coronavirus's best friend article that you put out, and and we're gonna we we've shared that in in the, in the comments, in the comments, and we're gonna put it in the I'll notes. Put it again. Just we're gonna to put it sure. in the notes on on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about uh you know that give people a little preempt so that we can actually direct them to that to that uh to that article that has had over forty thousand reads, I believe. Yes, yes. No, it's been very popular. I'm really glad uh, that that people are reading. Well, it's 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 basically telling people that the worst thing you can do is to panic, but it's easier said than done. So what I'm doing is I'm giving methods of, of doing that and also talking about the usual things that help the immune system. For example, washing your hands and staying home, that doesn't do anything for the immune system. That only prevents, which is necessary. And you have to have six feet away from people and, and, the, uh, and, and the social distancing, that's all very important. But the most important thing is to have a strong immune system. Here's some of the things that, that that they're talking about and they're not explaining very well. They'll say, uh, oh, if you're 65 and older, uh, you're more susceptible. Well, that depends on the immune system that you have. If you have a strong immune system at 65 and a compromised immune system at 30, the 30 is gonna be more susceptible. Right. Uh, it, it only attacks the elderly. Well, it doesn't. In New York, 50% of the people that, are, that have been infected are under 45 years old. There was a death of a child the other day. So it can affect anybody, and the key is immune function, not graphics of who you are. And they're even talking about now if you're if you're a type A person, if you're a type uh, A uh, blood, you're more susceptible. And those are just correlations. They look at what happened, and they look at things and what happened, and they make generalizations that uh, that don't necessarily really apply to everybody. So that's the first part. The second part is to do things that actually enhance immune function. Um, the, as we were talking about, the eating together, um, the creating rituals. Uh, zinc is very good because zinc helps in, in, in uh, reducing the proliferation of a virus. Uh, vitamin C, all the things that we know about are really important to be able to take and to do that. But the specific part of the, uh, of the article, as you know, is that I give a technique to create uh, the antibody that fights viruses. There's an antibody called IgA. There are five uh, antibodies that the B cells produce, and IgA is, is very um, prevalent in, 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 the, in the immune system, and IgA specifically attacks upper respiratory viruses. That's what it does. And we know now from psychoneurology that there are ways to actually increase the IgAs. So in the article, I give the technique of how to do it, and then to practice it at least twice a day for 15 minutes, and it'll last up to six hours. So at that time, if you're not infected, you're more protected. And if you're infected, it'll help you with whatever intervention is going on. And this comes, the research very briefly, I'll, I'll tell you, is that it, uh, about 20, 30 years ago, 
one of the researchers in, in psychoneurology, uh, uh, David McCollum, did some very interesting work looking at Mother Teresa and the work that she did, the compassionate work that she did. And he thought that they wanted to know what it did to the immune system, watch uh, acts of, of compassion. So he measured IgAs in the saliva. It's in the saliva and, and in the blood. So he made, measured the, the IgAs before and after. People were exposed to Mother Teresa doing all the compassionate acts in Calcutta with the lepers and HIV and so forth. And then another group, uh, she, uh, they had them look at the Nazi army and the uh, atrocities of the Nazi army. They later, when they finished, they found that the IgAs of the people that were watching Mother Teresa were significantly higher. So you're, you're getting upper respiratory protection right there. The people that watched uh, the Nazi uh, army, IgAs dropped significantly, which tells you you don't want to watch television when you're eating and you don't want to watch negative things. But the interesting thing about it was that they asked then people that saw Mother Teresa, how would you rate her as a compassionate person? And some people say 10, some people say, oh, she's just a, a religious zealot. Independent of how they rated her, all of their IgAs went up. Mm. So the immune system was looking at the compassion aspect rather than your satisfaction with uh, Mother Teresa. Right. Mm. Yeah. Many other studies have been done after that. Yeah, I mean, listen, man, I can, I can probably relate to that. Uh, you know, I practiced nursing for 25 years in New York City, and 23 out of those I've practiced in the emergency room. So I was around people with upper respiratory infections and all kinds of stuff, SARS, MERS, uh, the, the gamut. And, yeah. you know, I, I haven't had a, a flu or a severe upper respiratory tract infection in 20, in 20 years. And maybe two colds. And maybe maybe two, two mild colds since we've been together. Yeah. We've been yeah. together for seven years. And, yeah. you know, my, I, I know my level of compassion is crazy. Uh, Cole always tells me that I love people like nobody that she's ever seen. I have, my, I have a tremendous uh, amount of compassion and consideration and love for people. And the acts that I put out all the time are, <laughs> I would say, are very compassionate. So I would, say, I would say that's one of the things that has probably boosted my immune system for, for the years that I've been working. You know, the other nurses used to get very mad at me because of the time that I took with homeless people and the time that I took with people who were, you know, who were in, down, down on their luck and, and, and inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah. And these are the people, these other nurses were always sick, man. Like the doctors were always sick. And I would walk through the ER with, with no issues. And, and this is something that's been going on with me for a long time. So this... When uh when I read this, I mean, when you spoke about this at the at the at a pier on man, I was like, this is so spot on. My whole body was lit up with with uh with goosebumps because it just felt so resonant. Um, and you know, this is the thing we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it just so I you know I really appreciate you bringing this stuff to light because you know I do a lot of research on the human body, the human psyche, and getting into the, all the ologies, the, the 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 connection of the whole yeah. self. You know, the whole self, not breaking us, you know, compartmentalizing us, but looking at the whole self. And when I see somebody come up with something like that, that resonates with me so, so wonderfully, I can actually move that into the, the work that I do with other people. So, man. Sure, you can I, incorporate it. Yeah, yeah. man. I, mm -hmm. So this this work, uh, there's some some recent research that shows that you can actually do it better. You can actually get the IGAs up faster and, and greater by doing the technique that I that I talk about in, in, in the article, which is that you do the technique and then you, in your mind, you go back to times when you have been compassionate, when someone has been compassionate with you, when you observe compassion, and it actually works better than, than just watching the Mother Teresa. So it's really very, uh, very uh, inspiring in that sense because you can do it yourself. You don't yeah. hear about this because you, you, can't, you can't bottle it, you can't sell it. 
it's free. It's it's your body, it's your own uh, psychoneuroimmunology. But the good thing about it is that it can be tried uh, by anyone. And not only does it do that, but it also relaxes you uh, significantly when you do the technique. And it takes you away from panic. It's an anti-panic uh, method also. Uh, so it's really very powerful. The other thing yeah. about it, too, that, that's really helpful is that, I don't know if I talked about this at a, at a payron, but um, there's another, and these are very recent studies, too. Another study that looked at, uh, Aristotle said that uh, that hedonic life was not enough. Just pleasure for the, for the sake of pleasure was not enough. And he thought that what he called eudaimonic, which is, Pleasure with meaning and service mm. were better. So uh, as this went on, and they they argued about this for three thousand years. So there's a study now that looked at what's called CTRA, which is a, a set of uh, 21 genes in the in the immune cells that actually fight um, the uh, adversity by uh, uh, antibodies, antiviral, and and inflammation. Mm. So they measured people psychologically to see who was mostly hedonic. The, the extreme hedonic is a drug addict. That's just uh, the most hedonic, but you know, there are levels. And there are people that are basically doing things for the sake of pleasure and, and that's it. And then there were the eudaimonic, who were people who were had pleasure, but there was a, a component of service and a component of compassion again. And what they found was that the people that were hedonic had lower CTRA uh, strength than the people who were eudaimonic. So Aristotle was right. Now it took almost 3,000 years to, to prove that, that he was an immunologist. Uh, mm. But that's another thing you can do. So what can you do with that? How can you, how can you land that into, into the cave when you're, when you're uh, quarantined? Well, one of the things that, that hurts the most is to be isolated, not just to live alone, but to, be iso to feel isolated when you live alone. You can call people that you know live alone, have a conversation with them, create a ritual. You don't have to go anywhere. That in itself, when it gives you pleasure with service, you're increasing your CTRAs and you're increasing your IGAs. So that's a way to increase immunological defense, but also doing service for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that part of what I really appreciate with your article, with the approach, is the fear-based reactive de decision-making people are doing isn't fortifying what the real issue is here. And that is that systemically and, and globally, people are not well, you know, their, their immune systems are not fortified. They're not supported. In the first place. Right. And so we're putting a lot of focus on, we need to find a vaccine. We need to find the cure. We need to, you know, like, I think that isolation is important while we figure out what's going on and who's important. And very little talk is amongst all that noise because of what you said with marketing, because of the way that fear spreads versus education or anything positive. What isn't happening is a lot of sharing of how or, or the most impactful thing that we can do is fortify our immune systems by whatever means possible, mindset, understanding, breath, um, what you have in the article. And I appreciate that a lot because it's something that few are talking about outside of our circle. You know, if people right, that you, do, we talk about this all the time. You're right, because things are, that are necessary but not sufficient, they're doing external things. We know that the U.S., with all the, the great science that we have and the great medicine we have, compared to other countries, have a, has a very weak immune system because of the overuse of, uh, uh, of the uh, 
um, medications that are given that are, that are not necessary at the time, uh, you get a lot of antibiotics, an extreme overuse of antibiotics, where in other countries they do. For example, the French, you go to a doctor and, and they'll, they'll look at things and they'll, t they'll give you whatever they need to give you. But at the same time, they'll say, okay, let's look at what the terrain will do with it, with this, the terrain, the idea. And all of that comes from Pasteur, who was the one who discovered that, that germs actually cause disease. And Pasteur uh, said uh, on his deathbed, he said, the most important thing is the, the terrain, not the organisms, the terrain. Because there are people walking around and, they, and, and the virus will affect them, or not, will not affect them. They get it, they fight it. So I guess we don't want to be cavalier about it, but we want to see what is it that's causing this to us? Why is it that other countries don't get it as much? And why do we have this obsession uh, with uh, the medication, the over-medicating people? People, for example, uh, they lost a partner or a mother. Well, immediately they have to go on antidepressant. The body was made to mourn and to go through a process, but they give you an antidepressant immediately because you're not supposed to have that. And then the other thing about it that with what you were saying is that we have a society that has taught us to respond only when there's an alarm or, or when there's fear. So you have to have fear to make to to wake you up rather than be aware, like you were saying earlier, that uh, that you look at, at at what's going on outside and you pay attention to it. Um, what they do is they they say, look, you got to be careful. Uh, you just be cautious about what's going on. They don't pay attention. They say, be careful because you're going to die. Then that they pay attention, but the nocebo effect, the negative effect that it has, works against what you're trying to do, which is you don't want to create immune deficiency and that's what we're doing to a certain degree right yeah yeah i think i think a lot of you know what's going on with our our sick care system and uh you know the the wellness industry there there is no money in people being well and the drive behind a lot of this stuff is in the culture of shame and yeah. the idea that something, the, the idea that something is wrong with you, and something will be wrong with you, and this drives the this drives the the nervous system up into panic all the time. And people are in a, a, a semblance, some semblance of panic or, or sympathetic nervous system activation all the time, and it causes people to be in a space where they they feel that they need medication, and that medication. Uh, these medications that we were pumping into people, this is one of the reasons I had to leave nursing is because I was giving people medication that I knew they didn't need. I was giving people medication that I know was making things worse, that was not fortifying them as human beings, that was causing them to just be addicted to the idea that something was wrong with them. And this is something that we work with deeply with people is, is getting them to see that there's nothing wrong with them. They can fortify their bodies. They can fortify their culture, their lifestyle. They can fortify each other uh, by just knowing about the self. And, the, and deconstructing and, and, the shame and devices. And deconstructing the shame device, which which yeah. causes, you know, shame causes people to hide. And that's dishonesty. With, and, and it doesn't have to be lying. It's a uh, an inauthentic expression of the self or a blockage of the expression of the self completely. And when people are, are hiding, uh, they become very lonely. And when people are lonely, uh, they can be in a crowd full of people and still be lonely. And yeah. that, lonely, that loneliness causes stress on the body, it causes distress, it causes dysfunctional behavior, and that dysfunctional behavior ends up in the, de the degradation of the physicality of the human organism. And it, I mean, it's a very, uh, a very complicated system for each individual person, but we can all deconstruct this stuff and really start to, to move in the space where the self-esteem is boosted all the time and we, and we uplift one another. And I think that's why that compassion aspect that, that you put in your article drives so hard drives home so hard for me, man. It's because 
that compassionate aspect of, of caring for each other, for being that tribe, for being that, that culture of people who activate together drives our serotonin up. And that's the way the, con the connection is in, in that serotonin space, the oxytocin space. And it's not the, the, the hedonistic dopamine space, right? It's, it's, it's the serotonin space. And this is where all of the wonderful things start to happen. The IgA comes up, your, your whole immune system is on fire because your body is resting and it's able to repair itself. And um, I, I think that that when we move into a, into this new paradigm of, of humanity that I'm hoping we move into, it comes from a space of awareness, man. And and the bringing the things that you bring to the table uh, with 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 the article that you wrote, with your books, um, you know, and just with you doing talks and and your presence, man. I think that it's it's such an uh, a gift to the world, man. And uh, I, you know, I I wanted to ask you what got you started with all of this stuff. Okay, um, I'll tell you, but first I'm glad you brought up shame. Yeah, because, I would love for you to expand yeah, on shame. Shame causes inflammation. Yep. Shame, uh, when, when a person is shamed, the immune system, says, since it's a biosymbolic immune system because we have a, a cultural brain, the immune system begins to secrete interleukins 2, tumor necrosis factor, molecules that actually cause inflammation. And as you know, inflammation is related to anything from cancer to, to depression. So right there, what you're doing is you're creating uh, an underimmunity, a hypoimmunity, by shaming people, and and it and it happens. Uh, it's been shown in psychoimmunology for years and years that it it actually causes inflammation by the uh, by the molecules that are secreted. So the immune system responds to the culture because we have a cultural brain. So what brought me to uh, to this, uh, like any good science, frustration. <laughs> we got out of nursing and. And, and I was trained as a neuropsychologist, and I knew a lot about the pathology of the brain. Mm -hmm. And I would even get excited. I found uh, an accident of the brain here in the brain, and then this is the, the effect that it's going to have, and this is an aphasia, and this is this, and this and that. I thought, well, I, I got really uh, depressed about it and the solution because we were just looking at what doesn't work. Then I moved on into what happens then with a brain that works, and that's the cultural neuroscience. And I was fortunate enough to, to have uh, uh, George Solomon as my mentor who mm. created psychoneuroimmunology. He called it psychoimmunology at first. And he also was upset uh, with, with the system. And he said, I don't believe that, that just having the, the uh, rheumatoid factor is enough to have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And he found that there were psychological components that affected the uh, factor. And some people have the factor and they don't have rheumatoid arthritis. So that was the beginning of psychoneuroimmunology. So it's basically out of frustration, out of seeing that what I was doing was working with people who were sick, but not doing anything with people who were healthy and enhancing those horizons of health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I mean, there's a lot of what led us to these understandings with self-exploration. You know, by the time I was 26, I had endometriosis and fibromyalgia and arthritis in my right knee. Just like I had had lots of accidents, lots of whatever, but by 26, I was in a lot of pain. And these diagnoses, these conditions, I started to wear as a part of my identity. And when I first made dietary lifestyle changes after putting on 45-ish pounds um, and being so inflamed, and it was partially from a diet of um, you know, energy drinks, Ambien, and alcohol, um, the standard American diet for many, and what I realized through that process after changing my diet, of course, inflammation from food and alcohol was significant, right? And all that sugar. 
that maybe took 65% of my symptoms away. And I thought, great, if, you know, if I can maintain this, this is great. Like I can actually live my life this way. The thing is the other 35% I found through my own uh, work and working with different uh, curanderos and ayahuasqueros and facilitators of uh, psychedelic experiences was that other 35% of pain was coming from the deep self-loathing that I had for myself on a molecular level. And I didn't even know the depth of the self-loathing that I had until in one experience, I got a clear message that said, if you don't change this narrative, this belief that you have for yourself, you will get leukemia because you don't even think, like you don't believe you deserve something as kind as suicide. There's something that you believe you should just like suffer from the inside out in the most painful way possible. And when I really understood that and started to do the mind work, now I haven't had body pain. I mean, 2009 was my last hospitalization. I haven't even been to a doctor other than an emergency that I had. And it's been, it's not something I ever considered to explore because it's not something we're taught to even consider is that there's anything going on on an internal dialogue. Yes, and, 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 and you're right. What you put in is the fuel. And then what I call the, uh, or, or in, in neuroscience, is called the, the default mode is the lens that you use to look at the world. Mm -hmm. And the default mode is what needs to change, not the behavior. Right. Yes. And that's what, as you know, in biocognition, that's what I do. I work with, work with the default mode, the terrain that maintains the behaviors. But one of the things that we have inherited in, in modern medicine, especially allopathic medicine, is that biology in order to become legitimate it had to have a, an exact science like like physics so what they did is they borrowed everything from physics including the entropy and in physics mm -hmm. when you look at things that are not alive that are not self-organizing self-reproducing systems entropy works from order to disorder right so as you grow older you you have you get worse if you get sick and you get worse and if you uh, do something you get worse because it's the entropy that's built into the right. system Self-organizing systems like we are and, uh, and self-generating systems are closed systems in the sense that no matter what's going on outside, you're going you're gonna to create a liver and you're going to reproduce that liver. No matter what's going on outside, you can affect the liver, but, but the, what's called the internal horizons of that, of that person is not going to change. Right. So f f in order for us to have a better paradigm to understand living systems, I think we need to use complexity. And the entropy of complexity is that you go from simple to complex. So if you're 40, you're more complex than if you're 20, rather than more deteriorated than if you're 20. Right. right. And that's what I see in, in centenarians that I studied. As you know, the, the healthy centenarians, there is some wear and tear, but it's minimal compared to the thing, the wear and tear that you do with the archetypal wounds that, that I call that you were talking about, of the unworthiness that you have. And that right. was taught by culture editors. So you go back who they are, and there's some techniques, as you know, in the book, and uh, and then you clean that up, but you have to find out how you were wounded. Fibromyalgia is mm -hmm. a learned illness. It's yes. learned. It's not even autoimmune in the sense that it doesn't attack itself. It, it's inflammatory, but it it, it could be it could be corrected in, in eight to ten weeks. Uh, yes. with the right uh, work without any medication. Uh, yeah, mine. I, mine was never indicate any medication, mm -hmm. and the shifts that I made, the dietary. I went on an extreme elimination diet to really like you know cleanse my system and. And everything within 45 days, 
I had lost like almost 30 pounds because I cut out all alcohol and sugars and caffeine and really started to reset my system. And then I just stayed in a very clean eating diet and the majority of my pain was gone Within weeks, it was noticeable. By the end of 45 days, I felt like a different person. And it was also your mindset. Oh, for sure. Sure, yeah, for sure. whatever you let in. But for with fibromyalgia, you know, um, one of the problems is that you have a difficulty. Uh, you ha your sleep is very light, very light sleep, because at some point it had a function. You had to have light sleep at some function before, but then it doesn't have a function anymore. So you don't create the human growth hormones. When you don't sleep well, you get you 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 have a your um, um, pain receptors uh, uh, that are that are um, activated and you get depressed, of course, because you're hurting. And then then you're treated as a as a uh, fragmented person. You're given something for to get into delta sleep. You're given something for the pain. You're given something for the uh, um, depression, and nothing to deal with the terrain that costs and maintains the fibromyalgia. I, yes. I've worked with many 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 cases of fibromyalgia. And I couldn't find one that didn't have some shaming component in it. From yeah. The yeah, man. You know, that environment is so important. The internal and the external environment is important for, for, uh, for what you call the terrain. I mean, that if, if, if shame doesn't have a place to proliferate, it will not proliferate. That's and right. we, create, we create this environment of shame in our entire being, our entire physical being, uh, this, this shame complex. It's just like viruses. If a virus gets in and it has an ideal terrain to proliferate, it will. And shame will proliferate. These are, these are structures, these are constructs that proliferate and they affect the body just like anything else. And, and th th these are the things that we're looking to really expose to people and show them that all of these things work in, in a very similar fashion. If your terrain is in, is in a space where it is fortified with not just food, not just oxygen and, and clean water, but, but also really awesome uh, thought processes, self-esteem, you know, I believe esteem is the fuel for for your identity, you know, and and what are you pumping into your your identity? What are you pumping into your soul? Uh, you know, is is it is it fueled by shame or is it fueled by compassion, consideration, and and self love? You know, and when when all of these things come together and we start to see the the organism as a whole, the whole organism can take care of itself. It doesn't have to be susceptible to all of these outside things. That's correct. So, exactly. Yeah. And and you know the uh, about self esteem. If you want me to, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, yes, and, please. Um, because uh, it has to do with the culture. We cultures are basically either um, individualist, like uh, the Western world, like the um, um, United States, UK, Australia. But cultures are not just the same all across. The Asian cultures are more collectivist. The individual is not as important as the relationship with the individual and 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 his or her world and their family. But in the Western culture, one of the things that we can do in looking at, at self at self esteem is that there are three parts. You can do it with the Asians, but in a different way because they're they're more collectivist. But for the Western world, I think that the three components of, of self self esteem or, or worthiness. The first is what I call um, the valuation self esteem, and it comes to to answering the question that you were asking about uh, uh, whether you feel you're worthy or something. Valuation self-esteem is basically how worthy do you feel to accept good things without getting sick <laughs> or sabotaging? Mm. Right. That's the first part. The, se the, the second one is competence. How good are you at what you do? Uh, as, a, as a doctor, or as a nurse, or as a whatever, how good are you? And the third, which nobody talks about, is affiliation self-esteem. 
who are the quality people that you're willing to share your good fortune with. Mm-hmm. Those are really important. And mm-hmm. it's very easy because, as you know, I take things very complex and make them very easy and apl- uh, applicable to bring them up or bring them down. To bring up the valuation self-esteem, you have to keep self-caring commitments. If you keep them, it goes up. If you break them, it goes down. That's It's that simple. Uh, if you have a friend who constantly breaks commitments with you, the valuation of the person is going to go down. Well, that's what mm-hmm. we do to ourselves. So commitments are self-caring. Somebody says, uh, hey, let's go shopping. No, look, I'm going to stay home and just relax and do a little meditation. No, no, do it later. Do it later. No, come on. And, and cultures only uh, respond to sickness or, or yeah. victimhood. If you say you want to do something for yourself, do it some other time. But if you say you have a headache, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I do anything for you? Right. So the body listens and then uses sickness as a way of a, that's the first one. The second one, competence, is it's easier because competence requires new learning. If you're a nurse, you want to learn more nursing. If I'm a psychologist, I want to learn more psychology or whatever it is that you are. You learn more because the brain is made to learn, not just to stagnate. People who mm-hmm. retire and go into to watch the sunset and, and do nothing, they live four to five years so they get sick on the first year. Yep. Yep. No, no process, no, no novelty learning. It yep. goes up when you have new learning. It goes down when you stagnate with what you yes. have. Yeah. And the third has to do with the quality of people that you bring into your life to create that subculture of wellness that you had talked about earlier. And you don't need a lot of quality, a lot of quantity people. You need quality people, just a few that you, that your subculture that creates that tribe that allows you to come up and say, uh, you know, I, I was thinking that I want to go back to school. Why would you want to go back to school? Look, why don't you save for your retirement? That kind of, you don't need that kind of person. And, right. and then you find practitioners and people that actually think that way too. Doctors that think that way. Because in any profession, especially in medicine, you have the technicians and you have the, uh, um, what I call the, the scientists. The technicians only believe what they can measure. If you say, no, no, I'm sorry, that's what it is, you're gonna live six, six months. The scientist has an open mind for, and okay, let's make this an empirical question. Let's see what happens, see what happens. There was a psychiatrist that I worked with in, uh, in Uruguay when I was living there, and he was working quite a bit with fibromyalgia, and I said, look, what you're doing is okay, but it's not gonna cure it. He said, well, show me. And he was open, and he's using that method now with fibromyalgia. He gets rid of it in two months. So you wanna have a scientist, a person who's open, you don't want a technician. Technicians just measure things mm-hmm. in everything. In everything, there's a technician and there's a scientist. Um, so uh, those are things that, that can be done. But once, you, and this is why, for example, people will ask, how is it that somebody who is so good at, at, at what he does or she does, and, and this, this person runs a multi-billion dollar company and gets home and gets beat up by, emotionally by, by the, by the uh, partner because this person has very high competence self-esteem but very low valuation self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So once you do that, you can begin to see, okay, where am I uh, deficient and what do I need to work on? Mm-hmm. And I would love um, to, to take a, a step back to something else that you said to elaborate a little bit further um, with what you were saying in, oh, you were talking, and no, I just lost it. You were talking about it at a on and it stood out to me so profoundly Let's see, what was in the first step you said before competency is? Um, uh, valuation. Evaluation. And there was, what were the parts of that? Because that's where I heard, that's what triggered the memory. The valuation self-esteem? Mm-hmm. Well, it, well, it has to do with um, 
with and, and and this is not this is a way that that really I don't I've never heard anybody explain it to us, but I really think it works this way with the work that I've done and and from other you know extrapolating from other work uh, is that valuation self esteem is the level that you allow for good fortune to come in or good things to come in without getting sick without sabotaging it without that's what it was like for example if something's going well the the default mode will say what's missing here and and oh what's missing is this is this is too good to be true so let me just let me, let me blow it away um, or the getting sick to get out of things right like you had talked things. about if you don't want to do something don't say i have a headache or you're going to teach that's your body right. to create a headache anytime you're in a situation you don't want to be in that's right very important and if for example let's say you have a headache and somebody says do you want to do such and such no i don't uh how are you doing i'm doing fine because your headache is a microcosm of who you are your legs aren't hurting your heart's not hurting so when you say i'm fine you're not lying you just go into the part that's working hmm. and and in illnesses i think uh we all know about the secondary gains but that's only part of it the secondary gains are saying what and, and people don't need to blame themselves this is a subconscious process that's learned and takes quite a while in learning it but what is it that i don't have to do because of this illness that I don't want to do, and I don't feel assertive enough to do it. That's the first part. The mm -hmm. other part that's more subtle is what is it that I don't have to do that I don't feel worthy of? That's a really important one too. And you have to look at those two if you want to heal, whether you're mm -hmm. using allopathic medicine or uh, alternative or an, an integrative, whatever. You have to look at those two things because if not, the terrain will go back to the old ways. You cure this, yeah. but then you still don't have the assertiveness to. So you go back and you and you. And I've had people who actually have chosen to die. Uh, I've had a patient who um, was having some serious autoimmune problems, and she just didn't know how to say no. Her her daughter and and her um, son-in-law were abusing her by uh, having to babysit five days a week, and, and and she had no life. As she started setting limits, which which the first thing in healing requires setting limits. Number one, I set the the boundaries. I set the limits. And I give people permission to not like it, which is so important. So she starts setting the limits and she starts getting better. The symptoms get better. But then this, the, the daughter and the, the husband uh, shamed her back into the place. So I, she called me one day and she said, uh, oh, I was doing really well, but uh, I think I'm okay now. And I said, what about the symptoms? Oh, they're still there, but uh, I have a lot to do. I got to do laundry and I got to take care of my uh, grandchildren. Well, she died six months later. So yeah. that, that's a sentence. That, that you that you have uh, by not because you're more afraid to set limits and upset people than actually uh, take care of yourself and, yeah. and that's sad but there's a lot of that are in the in the world yeah, yeah there's a tremendous amount of it and you know we work with entrepreneurs who have these companies high performance very high performance yeah. people and they fall into something that we call the transformation trap which is tirelessly repeating a painful process in order to transform they have coupled uh, getting to uh, a success point and then crashing in order to transform into some new echelon. That's where and they get momentum. That's where they get momentum from. So they've coupled this, you know, I, I don't deserve to move to this next echelon unless I have this, this crash of my- To grow uh, through. Of, of yes. physical, a physical health crash, a relationship crash, a financial crash, a business crash. It's all still, you know, coming back to the physicality and the habit of being in that crash space. Yes, so that, totally that destructive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very destructive, and this is why um, 
very successful uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs of big companies have gastrointestinal problems and blood mm -hmm. pressure and cholesterol uh, because they go through that process. And that's not that's not the way to do it. So when I work with uh, uh, these companies, I use what I call the empowerment code, which is the, the model for organizations. I teach them to look at the culture that, that they've created and to see what archetype they're bringing into work. So without knowing it, the archetypes are like, like uh, uh, tools, tools for a context. The immune system and the nervous system and the endocrine system and the brain <clears throat> have been doing trial and error for so many hundreds, thousands of years. And they find that the archetype of the father is the, the best that, that you need if you're a father with a son. It's not the archetype of the lover or the archetype of the visionary, the father. And that's mm -hmm. like uh, a nail, you need a hammer, not a screwdriver. And the system begins to break down when you're not in the archetypal contextual coherence. Right. So the first thing that I look into is what are you bringing in and what are you not letting go of? Mm. And for a CEO, you have to be a visionary. But you don't go home to your partner to be a visionary or to your children. Just by that, just by learning to shift archetypes, 50 to 60% of the problems subside. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then you have something else that you can do with it. With, do you empower or you disempower people? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a, that's an example. And, and one of the things you can ask uh, your clients is what archetype are you overdoing? And the archetype is, it's called archetype because these are, these are ways of being that you can see at every culture. You have a, a father in every culture, a mother in every culture, but the culture will flavor how the father needs to be. Mm -hmm. And what, what archetype are you overdoing and what archetype are you underdoing? And one of the things that I had to do, I was working for a neuropsychiatric hospital and I was in the, uh, the, the healer, doctor archetype and i was going home and i wanted to heal and i wanted to teach and, I, and it didn't work so one of the things that i did which is a really simple technique is that you realize that you have to be a father at home okay so you can't just say okay i'm going to be a father at home you have to create new neural maps that takes a while so the way that i did it is i would go to the car my parking lot when i when i was uh, getting ready to go home i would turn on the the the, the ignition and the sound of the ignition was my key to move archetypes from healer or mm. doctor or whatever that, that I needed to be in the hospital to father. And I drove for 45 minutes home and I had 45 minutes to create fatherhood. When mm. I got home, I was a father. Nice. And Love it. that made a tremendous difference in what I was doing. And you'll find that people, when you teach them what archetypes are, they'll tell you immediately, oh, I'm overusing this one or I'm underusing that one. And teaching them to mm. do that, tremendous power when you do that. Love it. Yeah, we've been, this is like a beautiful uh, affirmation of something that we've been actively working on the last year or so, which is working with three archetypes of animals as they relate to what the animal's uh, characteristics are. We, we've spent a lot of time in Peru. And so with the snake, the puma, and the condor, as it relates, because we work in transformation pretty specifically, and getting people into a empowered transformation versus the transformation trap, which is the crash, the addiction to the crash and the adrenaline of a crash yeah. and then, you know, all of that. And so with the snake puma condor, the snake is when people first wake up to the fact they were in all these conditionings they were ascribed to that don't fit. You know, they start shedding that skin. So this is more of like the awakening evolution processes, the three stages that we see. And that's a lot of in hearing what you're saying with archetypes, it's it's like perfectly positioning the thought processes we've been had and helping people to identify, we call them the energies of evolution. Where are you operating from? Are you in the Puma energy that's beautiful when it's healthy, that it's got the focus and the drive and the hunt? 
but that energy does not function everywhere. You know, it doesn't function in every area, in every circumstance, and it's being attuned to the fact that you're in an archetype and deciding what archetype you want to be showing up as in different areas of your life because they require different things. Yes, very much. And that's that's what uh, a narrative medicine, that's what Native Americans use and and, 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 and uh, Natives of every, every using the narrative medicine, which is very compatible with uh, biocognition. In fact, there's a master's program now at Columbia on narrative medicine. So they're taking it seriously. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's teaching people tools that they can relate to immediately, uh, whether it's the Puma or um, the, so they can see how they're in. And, and when you say that, since these archetypes have been there since the beginning of time, they identify with them immediately. You don't have to teach them a lot. They get it immediately when you're talking. Yeah. It changed um, how we related to our clients. Just in, I mean, we could do a two-minute description, but because of people's already understanding of a snake, a puma, and then a condor, once they recognize a condor, not everyone knows it in North America. Sure. Um, but the difference in how they could relate to what we were saying completely changed. No. It didn't matter how deep we went into anything. That simple symbolism sure. gave them far more clarity. Yeah, the narrative. That's, that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. And thank you so much. I mean, this this has been uh, such a gem for us, man. I I so appreciate all of your knowledge and and your information and the way you break it down with such uh, elegant simplicity for everybody to understand. Specificity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's it's uh it's it's really awesome to be able to to get this in a language that people can digest. My pleasure. So, and I want to yeah. uh, congratulate you both for the work you're doing. It's wonderful. Thank, thank you. Man. Thank you so much, man. It feels so really pleasure. good. And uh, we'll stay in touch. And thank you for uh, for sharing that article because I think it'll be very helpful to to most people. Yeah. Yes. And and when people are looking to 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 find you, uh, just biocognitive.com. Wish they wish. And if they want to go to uh, Facebook, I have a lot of free information there, videos and so forth. Just uh, um, facebook.com then uh, forward uh, slash um, mind body culture. That's it. And then they'll find Dr. Mario Martinez. Okay. And YouTube as well. Yeah. YouTube as well. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for, for, uh, for helping the world to grow and, uh, and be connected with the self, man. I, I thank my you so pleasure. much. Thank we you so much you, for brother. inviting me and you have a wonderful evening. You too, my man. We will. And, and for anyone listening or watching the video, uh, we'll put all the links in the show notes, in the comments, for the article, for the website. This, if you really want to make big changes in your life, this is where it starts. You know, everything going on with coronavirus right now and COVID-19. And this is your opportunity to look in the environment you're in. Where is it mirroring the internal experience you're having? You know, this is a beautiful mirror and this is Mentor in the Mirror podcast. So we're all about the self-reflection and no one will ever know you or be the master of you like you. So we know you love this. Please rate, review, subscribe, subscribe share, share with, with a, a friend. friend. And if you're on Facebook, share it on your page. We love you. My name is Ta. My name is Cole. We are Ta Cole, and this is Mentor in the Mirror. Be, Be free. free.